Hello friends, welcome to Psych Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack, and I started this podcast because I believe psychology should be free for anyone, anywhere. Now, today's episode is for anyone who can relate to having a life experience where their career or personal journey is non-linear, where it wasn't very predictable, one door happens to open another, and then ending up with a very multifaceted career in psychology. So I want you to hear Dr. Sarah Lupus's story today. You can hear how passionate she is as she describes her research and also about mainly her teaching and advocacy for her students as well. So a little bit about Sarah. She completed her PhD in 2016 with the Laboratory for Biological Health Psychology at Brandeis University. I hope I pronounced that right. Her research focuses on the intersectionality, it's one of my favorite words, of emotion and stress. This research examines how people react emotionally to psychosocial stress and how this correlates to sympathetic nervous system and neuroendocrine stress responses. Her research interests also include predictors and moderators of these underlying mechanisms, including the effects of age, culture, gender, and body image. She has a very interesting job description, really. Um, it's really hard to describe, so you just listen to the episode and, and you can hear the different facets of her uh, current career, which is not very traditional. Uh, she helped le- create a learning community as well as an online community to help students share their stories. So in this episode, we covered many, many subjects. So it was hard to sort of summarize it in a short blurb here. And I felt like it was sort of a coffee shop vibe kind of conversation. So what I hope to do is that after this kind of episode where I learn about a person from my guest, that I can bring them back and then we can choose one particular aspect to really focus on down the line. Okay, let's get on with today's episode. Okay, welcome, Sarah, to the program. It's finally nice to meet you. And uh, where are you and how are you doing? Jack, it's such a pleasure <laughs> to be here. It's my first podcast. Yay! So, after listening to hundreds of podcasts, I'm really excited. I'm glad. Um, yep, so I'm speaking to you from Framingham, Massachusetts. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, it's a beautiful day, all as well. Okay, great, mm, and welcome. Yeah. Um, I put out an invitation through the, I believe it was a Facebook group for STP, right? Society for Teaching of Psychology, uh, which is a division of APA, American Psych Association. And I just wanted to invite um, psychologists, instructors, and whatnot to come onto the program to talk about whatever passion projects and their work, right? And you, if, and my listeners know from a lot of previous episodes, it's really just a casual conversation and it's not even just about, oh, I, I want to look for the most famous people, the most accomplished or published 10,000 books or did 10,000 TED Talks. I also want to talk to graduate students, undergrads, and people that no one's heard of but are doing such amazing work. So uh, I'm not saying you're one of those people. Okay? I'm just saying that I want to just talk to everyone, right? And uh, with no particular agenda or, or whatnot. So. Uh, Sarah, I want to hear your origin story. How did you get into psychology? And then we'll also talk about your your specialty area, your teaching and research and all that, uh, you know, afterwards. So how, go back as far as you want to 
in terms of, you know, what kind of uh, events led you to your current career? Sure. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. Um, So I always thought my career would be a kind of linear trajectory, and that turned out to not be the case at all. Um, I actually found myself falling into certain opportunities, um, and that's worked out really well for me so far. So um, I started college as a complete loser. (laughs) I had no idea what I wanted to study. I Mm. had no intrinsic motivation and I had a really bad first year, Mm. really bad. And uh, in my sophomore year, I took an intro to psychology class and um, it was exactly what I was looking for. Um, I remember sitting in the back of an auditorium with 300 people and thinking that this is something I could maybe pursue for the rest of my life. Wow. Wow. Um, and every once in a while, I'll have students who I can see are having the same experience, which is always, always really fun, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to be a part of that moment. Right, right. Where they come to you after class and say, I might be interested in a career in psychology, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. it's so fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, I live for that moment. So you had that experience in one class or maybe a series of classes that sort of the light bulb went off. Do you remember anything specific about the course that sort of struck you where you felt like this might be a good fit for me? Do, do you have any recollection of what at that time, what that might have been? See, that's so interesting because I can't tell you who taught the class. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what I did in the class, but um, you probably know this this wounded healer paradigm, right? Mm. This idea that um, it's the the young people who need therapy who who end up studying psychology. And I identify with that, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I came from a very very controlled um, authoritarian household. And so I had not really had a chance to introspect or figure out who I really was. You know, I was having an identity crisis and something about this course made me look within and realize that it could provide answers to some of the fundamental questions that I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and what I'm learning, and I, what I hope my audience, made up of maybe young people or those interested in a career in psychology, that some of the things they can get from these conversations I'm having is is that everyone I'm talking to it, it humanizes them in a sense. That I think oftentimes when we're younger and we look up to our professors or psychology, you know, research people and think, oh, um, they must have been just A-plus students since kindergarten and knew what they want to do since the age of five and never made mistakes or never had it really difficult. But what I'm gathering is I'm hearing so many who said that they were awful students in high school. <laughs> they, they really struggled with it. They had no idea or they made their dis- they, they were in one career and switched later, right? So uh, I'm glad to hear your story as well in terms of how you got started and in that it was a struggle until you took some psychology classes and became interested in them. So continue on, how how did this journey go uh, from that point? Yeah, it's so interesting you mentioned that. It's a pretty isolating feeling, right? To think Mm. that everyone else has it figured out. And, um, you know, once you start talking to people, you realize it's, you know, 
this life journey, um, you know, is unpredictable and being flexible and, and letting opportunities come can be really exciting too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but once I was off and running, I took basically all the psych courses that I could. I got a little bit into qualitative research, but, um, you know, I graduated with my BA and entered the world of work and I was a loser again. Um, <laughs> why, um, why would you say that? <laughs> I, I felt like I didn't fit in mm. anywhere or have like, you know, the real world skills that I needed. And so I just got fired from job after job and, you know, how to reconsider things again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I thought of my happiest time, which was studying psychology and decided just to go to grad school yeah. and, and keep yeah. going. Yeah. So as a bachelor degree professional, what kind of work were you doing? Um, I don't want to get into why you got fired at every job, that kind of thing. You know, obviously those are rough times. But what, what kind of work were you doing? And then um, what, what triggered this uh, the change to go back to school, I guess, the, the, the idea of going back. And you mentioned that a little bit, that that was sort of your comfort zone, you know, that, that you enjoyed learning psychology, so you want to go back for more. But was yeah. there something about the work that you were doing that was just so dissatisfied that you wanted to get away from it? So um, the answer to your first question is, first of all, I was always in food service. So I started working in restaurants when I was, I think, 16. And so I always had a waitressing side gig going mm. um, and I'm a people pleaser. So in hindsight, that probably wasn't the best place for me. <laughs> um, but I did some, I did some client management work. Um, I worked in a, a museum for a bit of time and mm. um, I wanted to be around people who thought about, you know, um, solutions to big problems and and thinking creatively and you know working to make positive change in our communities and our world and so I actually got a job at an extension school which offered graduate level courses for 50 bucks 50 bucks a pop mm. and as I was poor at the time I yeah. took advantage of that and and you know got some courses under my belt yeah yeah so tell me about grad school and in grad school for your master's degree, was there a specialization or was it more of a generalist kind of psych degree? And, and did you start to become interested in, in any particular specialty area during those years? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to do research. At the time, I really felt I was interested in clinical work, but it didn't feel like I was emotionally um, prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had lived in the Waltham area and knew of Brandeis, knew it was a, a great research institution. And so I applied actually to work in a lab that does research on sexual sadists and psychopaths. Wow. Uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm a true crime nut. Um, I know it's probably not health promoting, but I thought that would be <laughs> such interesting work. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, that is very interesting. Um, so I was declined from that lab, but the PI saw something in my application that must have been interesting. He handed it over to another researcher who was doing stress research. Hmm. So we met and had a great conversation, and I was off and running in stress research. Yeah. So what what is it? What kind of questions were you trying to answer, at, if you recall, during those early years of being a researcher? What, what kind of 
questions were you interested in wanting to know, I guess? So when I think back to undergrad, um, my track was mostly social developmental, and I found myself frustrated by the fact that, okay, so we're presented that some factor A is associated with some factor B, but how does that happen, right? So what are the underlying mechanisms? Like how does something like stress actually get inside the body and create change? And so this line of research really helped me understand more about the the mind-body connection, which Mm you know, is, is, is big. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking about how that kind of basic research can translate into actionable change. Yeah. Yeah. So is that kind of research more, uh, experimental in nature or more, I guess, uh, descriptive or observational in nature? So, you know, we worked with behavioral data, we worked with self-report data, and we worked Mm -hmm. with physiological data. I would describe it as basic research, um, which is frustrating, right? You spend all Mm -hmm. this time publishing basic research, and you don't necessarily get to see the payoff of it being applied. Right, right. Uh, But it certainly had an impact on my own life. So I've grown Mm -hmm. immensely from, from doing that kind of work. Yeah, yeah. And for our, our newbie listeners out there, this is a good chance to, to explain some of these basic concepts. So how would you explain the difference between what's called what we normally call basic research and applied research? Yeah, that's something I struggle with myself because so many people do both, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and the two inform each other. So you take mm-hmm. basic research and apply it. But when I think about basic research, it's understanding on a fundamental level how things work in a controlled environment. Yeah. And when you're thinking about applied, it's how does this work with real people in real communities? Um, so I don't see how one could exist without the other. Um, I think they're both really exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there still a trend to emphasize basic research or do you think, uh, let's say for a lot of new researchers coming in that their interest lies leans more toward applied? Is, is there sort of a an emphasis of one over the other or, or do you feel like it's, it's balanced in a good way. There's still a lot of emphasis on basic research, which increases our knowledge base, obviously, about a subject, right? Then applied research, like how would this work in a family situation or work, you know, uh, context. So do you have a preference or, or is there a trend? For one versus the other, I don't. I don't even know if that's a good question. But <laughs> Jack, that's an amazing question. I, I, I'm thinking about that actively. Um, I would say so. My personality is not necessarily suited for basic research, hmm. which I didn't discover until I performed basic research. <laughs> but when I started teaching, I really discovered how much I like working with people. Hmm. Um, to see the impact of my work. I love talking to students about, you know, their backgrounds, experiences. And that surprised me a lot because I didn't think I was a people person. Oh. So, um, Is it yeah, because that... you're introverted? Is that part of it? And you didn't think that that part of teaching, interacting with students would be something you would enjoy? Yeah, so that's surprising. Yeah, <laughs> to- total uh, social introvert, yes. Mm-hmm. But um I always knew that I was a little weird socially mm-hmm. and was avoiding situations that put me in social situations. And once I started to 
you know, live more genuinely and lean into the weirdness, I was surprised that people responded positively to that. Yeah, just being yourself. Yeah. Right? Just feeling it, comfortable being yourself. Someone gave me a piece of advice once. I wish I, I have source amnesia, but, you know, when, when you're teaching, just if you're funny, be funny. And yeah. if you're sarcastic, be sarcastic. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, just be your, don't try to emulate someone or role play someone else. Just just yes. be your, bring yourself to the classroom. And you know that youth are savvy. They'll pick up on it. And, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if you're trying to fake it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not even trying to pretend to be funny anymore. Like, yeah. I, I just am. <laughs> okay. So it sounds like what you're saying is that um, uh, you really get a lot more satisfaction out of the applied side of research than the basic side. Right. I do. So, yeah. I do. Yeah. I want to I want to see the fruits of my labor, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 You don't want to just publish it, go into a journal and no one ever sees it. <laughs> I remember a stat once that like for every piece of published research, 11 people will read it. Hmm. 11 people will see it. Wow. And usually those might be other researchers, I guess, who, who might be will cite you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a thrill, you know, on ResearchGate when you see someone cited your research. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah. that's nice. Validation. Yeah. 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 So you're a faculty member now, right? So um, you have, I'm guessing you have research obligations, right? In terms of uh, maybe certain goals and, and targets to reach, as well as teaching obligations, right? Can you talk a little bit about each of those and and what it's like? Sure. So um, I actually don't do much research nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm focusing on teaching and academic administration, Okay. which I was also surprised that I really liked um, to kind of serve my institution in a different way. Yeah. Um, I find yeah, that a lot of students don't know about careers in academic administration, so I'm always happy to talk to them about that. Yeah. Yeah, because I know from the faculty level, oftentimes when there's a department chair opening, everybody takes two steps back, right? This is this is sort of notion that it's a thankless position. Um, but in my previous podcast, speaking with uh, my old friend Des Robinson from Texas, he's a department chair and he relishes that role. He loves that role, right? So it just seems like to be an administrator at any level within the college system, you have to really enjoy it enjoy aspects of it right so so what is it that you enjoy out of that particular role yeah and, chair is such an important role too mm -hmm. i mean that that is really a passion project so it's cool to hear that yeah that he enjoys that work yeah um, yeah because for a lot of people they just complain that it's more work for less pay well i don't know but it's just more responsibility right and not everyone really is fitted for that role, uh, suited yeah. for that role, right? So the pay thing is interesting because I'm an adjunct. So <laughs> I mean, uh... yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> We're part of the club. <laughs> okay, so we could do an entire podcast about that, but uh, you know, I think people in academia aren't aren't in it to become millionaires because right. it's it's an impossible task, right? Yeah. Um, but being in administration allows you to play a role in in positive change. Um, so I've worked in two different departments now and 
you know, it becomes really clear that the needs are, of students are different from the needs of faculty or different from the needs of the administration. And so a lot of what I do is figure out what people need and figure out ways to, to get them those things. Mm -hmm. And that, no, it doesn't pay well. Yeah, it, it does yeah. not pay well. Yeah. So may I ask, how, how is it that, um, how do you do that as an adjunct to work in those kinds of administrative roles? Um, how, do, how do you navigate that? Because my typical thinking of an adjunct is that they only have teaching responsibilities. They don't have other like campus related responsibilities. How, how did you end up doing that? Yeah, so there's a lot of role switching involved. Um, so I see students a lot and sometimes have to ask them, and I'm working on my communication around it, in what context are you asking me for advice? Are you asking me as an alum of the program? Because I teach and work in the university that conferred my PhD <laughs> degree. Um, and so, so sometimes I'll just establish those boundaries right from the start. I will say there's a little bit of confusion for students about what it is I do and in what capacity. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, this, this kind of stuff happens when you wear many hats. But um, I also have this fear that people still see me as a graduate student mm -hmm. um, and not as, you know, a member of the, the academy. And I'm sure that's just my own neuroses. Um, <laughs> you know, I got to watch that. But. Right, right. Yeah. Just, just feeling comfortable in the role. Um, so you say you're at the same working at the same university that you earned your degree in, right? Yeah. So was that a? And so obviously, other faculty member that you took classes from yeah. now suddenly are colleagues. Yes. Yeah. So what's that like? Because I don't think I've ever been in that kind of position of being a grad student then then working in that same department and suddenly your professors are your peers in a sense yeah so what's it's that weird what's, yeah. it's really really <laughs> weird um and and i've also taught at institutions outside of mine which is great mm -hmm. because um you know i've taught adult learners and transitional students and community college students and so that's really helped me just like improve my teaching practice um, I loved my institution so much and still do. I mean, um, I actually was interviewed for the student newspaper. So if you Google my name and why I stayed, you'll see an interview, um, mm -hmm. you know, where people ask me, you know, you graduated with your degree, why'd you stick around? And, um, you know, I just believe so much in the mission of the university. The students are amazing. Um, mm -hmm. They always make me think, always make me laugh. And so, you know, it wasn't a hard decision to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if you love the environment, why not, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, I've just had so many great experiences. You know, this is the institution that made me a scientist. And so I feel a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, I just love it. Yeah. yeah. So what is your trajectory now? What are, What are your... I don't like to use the word ambitions because sometimes it sounds negative. Oh, I have this uh, ambition to take over the world kind of thing, you know, like world yeah. domination. But what what are what is your uh, outlook in terms of where you want to be, where you where you plan to go, right? Uh, like for myself, it's 
I have a different lifestyle. I'm 55, so I figure maybe I have 10, 15 years of teaching. You look life. so young, Jack. Are you really? <laughs> yeah, 55. And uh, I know it's an Asian thing, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, I've, I've, I've been a full-time faculty before, and I like the flexibility of being an online instructor, and we travel a lot and that kind of thing, right? So have internet, will travel kind of thing. And so I don't have the ambition to really take on a role. And I've turned down opportunities to interview for full-time positions at the college I'm teaching at. I, I, I keep getting, you know, invitations like, oh, there's an opening coming up, you wanna apply for it? I was like, well, <laughs> you know, it would be great to live in the Seattle area, have a house and all that. I'm in Texas right now. But then it's like, well, I'll be stuck in one place. I'll have a lot more responsibility. Do I really want that, right? And it's not always about the money, right? So for me, it's also about the time and flexibility that's valuable. Um, so, so back, back to you. Okay. Enough about me. Back to you. I just so. want to say this is so refreshing <laughs> because it is very much the culture of academia to take yeah. on more, right? Right. It's always right. the next thing, the next achievement, the next paper in a way that we don't always get to fully enjoy the successes and milestones because it's always on to the next thing. So right, it's about climbing that ladder. It, and... To me, academia <laughs> is very similar to the corporate world in that way. Right. With a lower salary. With a lower salary, <laughs> just without the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great that you're making choices that are health promoting for you because that's not always easy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So I felt like I was very lucky to be an early online instructor when that became available, or where distance learning, they used to call it, was a new thing. And then it allowed us to travel overseas, you know, live overseas for a while while teaching classes in the States. And not every college was into that. So I was lucky to have one college that was really okay with it. And of course, they were on the West Coast, you know, so, you know. Um, and then um, the pandemic hit, and I realized that, oh, and at some point, I was almost burning out from teaching online, you know, it was yeah. not, I was losing some inspiration. Then when the pandemic hit, I started to become very grateful that, oh, I, you know, a lot of people lost their work or, you know, lost lives and all that kind of, a lot of tragedies happening. I'm, I'm lucky that I have a pandemic proof profession. <laughs> That's so <laughs> you know? wonderful. And yeah. you have an attitude of gratitude, which is extremely health promoting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a blessing to be able to do what we want to do, honestly. Yeah. 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 So let me focus a little bit about health psychology, right? Yes. So do you teach health psychology or is it part of a course that you teach? So as an adjunct, as you know, mm -hmm. um, I have very little control yeah. over what I teach and when. But I do have a spring course I've been teaching for a couple years now. That is my baby. Mm -hmm. um, so I invest a lot in it. I created a learning community around it. And it's focused on um, adolescence and emerging adulthood. Okay. Yeah. Which... Um, is that the title of the course? That is the title of the course. Oh, nice. And so with this new side venture I'm doing, I'm actually reaching out to old students a lot. Mm -hmm. And they're giving me 
you know, pity follows and words of encouragement. And so um, I really, really feel good about what we created um, before, during and after a pandemic mm-hmm. in that community. Yeah, I try to avoid it most of the time. So I'd basically do my podcast, share it there. I have a Discord community, something you may want to look into is really great, um, where we have a lot of discussions and you create a lot of different channels with different subject matter. And I have about 50 people made up of listeners who joined, right? Uh, sometimes it's active, sometimes it's not, but that's something you may want to think about in addition to having, you know, a traditional blog or website. Um, that's so interesting because yeah. I use Discord for Pokemon Go, like to um, yeah. do raids and stuff, <laughs> but it never occurred to me that that would be, but I think you might be right. Yeah. 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 My yeah. daughter took it upon herself when she was taking community college classes to create a Discord group for students, right? And it wasn't something the college did she just made them so any of her classmates could join and they can discuss things and talk about you know the questions they may have about this or that it was especially important in her math class you really want to support from her peers wow that's amazing the (laughs) ingenuity of youth you know I know it's if you could put it in a bottle and keep it like never lose that never lose that yeah yeah Yeah. and this summer she has like three really best friends from those classes that they hang out with so um, this is good social media right right. social media for good that's right Yeah. yeah yeah Okay, um, I think we're about to wind down. So I wanted to um, ask my guests some some more less serious topics. So let's finish by talking about how about and, and I'm just making this up as I go along because I, I really haven't come up with a, a theme for every interview yet. But uh, what are some of your favorite beverages and foods? Let's just okay. That. <laughs> so you know I'm drinking a bubble tea right now. That's right. Um, so this is a mango green tea with lychee jelly, and it is chef's kiss amazing very good i will admit that i'm not a very good cook um that's the follow-through part right so i'll look at recipes and get excited and and it's time to shop (laughs) for groceries and i just i just do you have an instant pot you know the 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 one that everybody has so we have an air fryer which is we use it for everything and it's great um you know i'm i'm kind of utilitarian you know i use grubhub a lot Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of another industry food. that took off during the pandemic, right? Food oh delivery. my god! <laughs> and I feel really torn about using it because I know it doesn't benefit the like small businesses that mm. I like to to purvey. So like, I'm are you saying it's bombarded. not? Are you saying it's not profitable for the restaurants that use the delivery, or what so do you mean by that? My understanding is that by signing up for Grubhub, um, the fees will go to the platform and right. not to the restaurant. Uh-huh. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Capitalism is a curse. Um, or even the delivery people, right? It's sort <laughs> yes. of like, yeah, yeah. I think they yes. they they get they have to really hustle to, to make any meaningful money, right? And, and I've worked in the restaurant industry. I am probably one of the best tippers you'll ever meet. Like, mm-hmm. it is thankless work. And um, I stand with, I stand with retail. I stand with food service. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. My brother-in-law works at a high end. Uh, he's a high end server. He's been doing that for years, uh, back in Vegas and now in Houston, right? Some of the most well-known restaurants. And, and I can't imagine doing what he does. He walks like 20 to 30,000 steps a day. <laughs> and, and lifting and, and stooping yeah. and cleaning. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, and the reason I mentioned that is because he also, 
tips very well when he's the customer. And I, I really respect that. And that's really changed my way of thinking about tipping, uh, whether it's a delivery person for pizza or just someone who's actually in the restaurant serving the food. My empathy levels really shot way up and never blame the server if the food is running a little bit late. In fact, I usually give some sort of empathetic response to them, whether it's to a cashier and they, and it just, you can see this big sigh of relief come over them. They're so appreciative. It's like, oh, thank, you know, <laughs> thanks for supporting them in that way. Right. I mean, they're your fellow human beings and they work extremely hard. So that empathy goes a long way. Yep. This tipping culture too, I could do a podcast about um, <laughs> the ways that restaurants, you know. Hey, maybe we could do the psychology of tipping. Um, and, uh, and, and both from the psychological and the business aspect of it, right? Because I, I know that in other countries that this tipping format just doesn't exist. Yeah, right. I think it needs to go, but yeah. we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's still a lot of people who are for it, but I, I've seen some movements from big restaurant companies or chains to to go to back to a salary type system, right? I'm with, for it with benefits and instead of paying what two dollars an hour, then the rest is tips. Somehow. I got two sixty three an hour, and uh, you know what are you gonna do? Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, Sarah, it's really nice to meet you. Thanks for making the time. Enjoy your bubble tea. Oh, it's and, been delightful, Jack. Thank you so much for, yeah. for having me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And hopefully down the line, uh, if you have any ideas for a very specific topic you'd like us to focus on and, and take a deeper dive, let's do that. Okay. Juicy, so just, yeah. So, so find me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my phone, so I will get the, the DMs, as the kids call them, and, uh, and we'll, we'll keep in touch. Cool. Thanks so much, Jack. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Like perfectionism is a yeah a problem I have. So it's it's in rough shape. But um, what what's your vision for it? So I'm working on the vision. I'm thinking about it a lot. But mm -hmm. I want it to be as anti-capitalist as it can possibly be. Mm. Which causes a problem right off the bat because people should be paid for their work and effort, right? Right. This is, right kind of my anti-work, you know, philosophy. And so I'm a poor adjunct and can't pay for, <laughs> for people to do work. And so um, I'm asking students to, you know, if they have previous work they've done, be it artwork or, you know, reflections or papers or insights, and they feel like sharing, um, you know, I want this to be a platform for that. Um, there's something so magical about the Zoomer generation, and I talk a lot about cohorts um, in my classes, but there's something that links my generation philosophically to the Zoomers. Like, I feel a really strong solidarity with this generation mm -hmm. of being born into a problematic system yeah. um, and really feeling powerless against that um, and so what the Zoomers have that I don't have is technological expertise and facility yeah. <laughs> and tools and skills for advocacy. And what, what Zoomers understand, you know, I talk to students about things like boundaries and mental health and, you know, communication and consent and things that I never had at that age. I feel like this generation might save us all. 
Yeah, I see a lot of hope in this younger generation. My daughter's 19, and, and um, I just don't want them to be crushed by the avalanche of disasters they see. And they're amplified because of social media. You know, I think over time, we've probably had our share of types of uh, disasters and, and all that. But uh, for them, it's just a constant stream of that. So I like what you said that with social media, it can serve it can save people right and it probably has saved people and improved their mental health because of you know the pandemic we're all stuck at home providing connection with others but it's such a double-edged sword as a tool because it can also put someone off the edge and and ruin someone's mental health as well right it just depends on how we approach it and how we utilize it I love that you call it a tool because that's how I think about it too, right? Mm -hmm. It's all in how you use it. So like an axe, right, is yeah. a tool that you can use to chop down firewood or you could cause harm to someone, right? Yeah. Yeah. So social media is the same way. And I, I do see the positive benefit of it, even though I see, <laughs> um, you know, the effects that it has on body image and self-esteem and, and bullying. And so, I mean, if we can harness the the connective nature of social media, that would be great. That would yeah. Be cool. yeah. And, I, and I'm hoping that representation can help diffuse a lot of those negative effects of social media, whether it's um, this very narrow definition of beauty and perfection or image, body image like you're talking about, right? And the more diverse representation we have, I hope that will diffuse that, that, oh, there's, there's enough people out there who kind of resemble me that it's acceptable to look the way I am or be who yeah. I am. I mean, we're, we're both from generations that didn't grow up with internet, that didn't yeah. grow up with social media and this constant, relentless, you mm -hmm. know, news cycle communication. And I'm grateful to have been spared that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even though at times I wonder, how do we get around before Google Maps? But, you know, we managed. MapQuest, you would print <laughs> That's right, it was MapQuest. How do, we, how do we go out of the house without a mobile phone? <laughs> you just say, I'm going to be back at 10, and you're back at 10. Uh, <laughs> I try to explain this to students, and I feel like a dinosaur because, you know, I'm twice their age now. But, like, you know, when I left for the evening, I didn't have a cell phone. Like, my parents couldn't get in touch with me. And, yeah. you know, there's a freedom in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, the opportunity to be disconnected in that way, and I, I think that maybe fosters response, sense of responsibility, right? Your word means something when you're telling someone, oh, let's meet at some location in 15 minutes or at 3 o'clock or whatever. But with cell phones, <laughs> everything can be last minute, right? And you, you can just say, I'm not going to be there or whatever. There's your double-edged sword, Jack. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the scope of of the world is just changing so much and so quickly that it's, it's hard to keep up sometimes. Yeah. 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 So with, with these interview type episodes where I have a guest and I'm meeting them for the first time, oftentimes it's not something where I have a theme, you know, like a subtitle for the episode going in. It oftentimes emerges after the conversation is always like, okay, what did we talk about? What, what did we really focus on? Was it someone's teaching research or this? And I'm, and I'm thinking it has to do with mental health for us here, adjunct life, uh, graduate students, right? I think it's the, the unsung heroes within the academic system that might be 
what we're focused on today in our conversation. What do you it think? has evolved that way, actually. Yeah. And um, it's kind of empowering to talk about. And, you know, it takes a village to keep a, an institution running. And, you know, people in the registrar have their role and it's super important. And student accessibility services is super important. And, um, you know, as an undergrad, I had no idea who these people were or what they did or how they could help me. And so I think if we can demystify the, the higher ed process would be doing a social good. Yeah, yeah. So coming from your administrative lens, what, what ideally if you could use a you know Harry Potter wand and change things. Um, how can we better support students, whether they're undergrads or grad students, that we aren't doing now, that the system is falling short of? Have you thought about that, giving yourself the freedom to even think about those kinds so, of ideas? <laughs> I'll counter your question with an observation, mm. and that is that, so I've been in higher ed for a while now, is that the further behind the curtain I get, the more I realize that the academy is increasingly running like a business. Mm, right. Would you agree with that assertion? Yeah, I think there is a business model to it because uh, as some of the colleges I used to work for, there was so much emphasis on enrollment, right? Get people in the door so they obviously pay for tuition, right, as income, revenue, but not a whole lot of focus on graduation rates, right? In other kinds of student support yes. types, type and services. and what what happens to students when they leave our our programs, right? So our department now is really working on examining time to degree, see what kind of jobs people end up with, because you know my experience was you're a PhD student, you know you're going to be an academic, you're going to do a postdoc, you're going to work in a lab, and you know so many of my colleagues didn't take that path. You know, they're in nonprofits and industry and entrepreneurs and, um, you know, maybe we could incorporate some some programming or just, you know, prepare students for non-traditional academic careers, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and act, master's degrees and doctorate degrees, even college degrees in general is not really, f doesn't have to be for everyone, right? And having worked in a community college, there are so many great careers out there and satisfying work that can be done with a minimal of college level courses, right? Uh, or certificate type trainings. But I think there's so much pressure on young people to, to get the, those college degrees and then they end up in debt and <laughs> maybe not getting the right job they expected, right? Yeah. We have oh. we have to make sure we're not selling a false bill of promises. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I think what academia is great for is the training uh, future academics, <laughs> and you know, training you to think because yeah. the world yeah. opened up for me once I had that experience. You know, to think critically and be open-minded. One of the hardest lessons and the best was it's okay and good to say we're wrong. You know, that you were misinformed, that you were not informed and adapting and changing your mind when new information is presented. I think we see that as a weakness when it's, you know, it's a sign of strength and growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the thinking like a psychologist that we often talk about as instructors, I think is so important, right? That plays a huge part in that critical thinking. Um, 
given that we have huge segments of our society that, you know, are bombarded with disinformation, misinformation, and, and not able to really think through the information they're being bombarded with. And, um, and we're seeing the consequences of that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think people could argue that critical thinking is not an extremely necessary skill in today's landscape. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and so just like my previous conversation with other instructors, the, the focus maybe shouldn't be so much on content, you know, a whole list of terms that we want our students to know, but it's just, just teaching them how to learn, teaching them how to think, right? Think better. And feel, so science is like this, right? Feeling comfortable in the not knowing. Yeah. And wasn't that our experience in grad school? The more we dove into a specific area, the less we knew for sure. <laughs> I think that, you know, everything is much more ambiguous, right? Everything, every research study ends with, we might, we may know these things, right? There's a tendency and, and it's frustrating because sometimes as an early learner, we want to know things for sure. What is the truth? And uh, in science, it's often not phrased that way. Yeah. I, so, you know, in psychology, we don't talk about laws, right? We talk about theories and that they're constantly changing and adapting. And, uh, you know, I think it's very much a, a human mind trick to to look for those absolutes. And when you're studying human beings, there there are none. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. just feeling comfortable that things are complex. And, they're no and that's easy a beautiful answer. thing. It's yeah. a beautiful, yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think in our society, so many people are just grasping for, you know, the ultimate solution to a problem, right? Or, or an explanation for, for a problem without really appreciating the fact that, well, maybe it's a complicated thing and there are no easy answers to to solve, solve that particular problem. Yeah, we're and Jack, yeah. <laughs> you provided me with the perfect segue to talk about stress, which yes. I realized in hindsight I haven't done, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. That's your so, area. Yeah. So science has identified certain factors that are inherently stressful or stress-inducing. They include things that have ego involvement, meaning we care about them, things that are unpredictable, uncontrollable, and novel. Um, here we are in the uh, <laughs> aftermath of a global pandemic, which is completely novel, yeah. completely uncontrollable. Right. Um, and of course, there's personal stake in the game, right? So one powerful mode of stress mitigation is whatever you can take control of, do it, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in absolutes, we're looking for that sense of control, right? right. Um, that's not always possible. <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. <laughs> when the problem-focused coping fails, you're left with emotion-focused coping, right? right? Right. So if we can't change or amend or control, um, how can we think about how we're thinking about it, reacting to it emotionally? Um, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Yeah, yeah. Especially when it comes to career-related things uh, or relationships or, um, you know, any aspect of our lives, right? We may feel trapped. We may not feel like we can make changes, and uh, and I had Dr. Bob Bauer recently on, and and we were talking about those exact things, you know, problem focused coping, emotion focused coping, yes. right? Why didn't they teach me that in school? I didn't learn this until I was, you know, yeah. twenty seven and in grad school. How can we? Also, an intro to psych. I always felt like that would be a great chapter one. 
right? You, you set the, the stage, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, and also, you know, the, the mental disorders and symptoms and treatment, I mean, I felt like those could be like really early, like, you know, engaging subjects to start with, not save them for chapter 13 and 15 and 16 like they usually are. Jack, you are killing me because in my class, <laughs> disorders are chapter 13 of the textbook. So yeah, exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on a bit of a tangent and feel okay, free to ahead. cut this if it's not germane <laughs> of the conversation. I am obsessed with course evaluations and I know yeah. professors who don't even read them because all of the systemic, you know, sexism, racism things. So we understand that. But I had a student write on a course evaluation that, you know. This comes at the end of the semester, but you know, I feel like we didn't get enough time to really like hash through it. So I'm thinking, okay, I need a couple weeks to really create the safe environment, right? First day we're getting to know each other is probably not the time to delve into depression, trauma, you know, abuse. And so I ended up putting it, you know, midway through the semester. And um, I'll never know who that student is or, you know, mm -hmm. be able to thank them, but um yes yes i agree with you <laughs> yeah so was the student saying that we should cover and approach those subjects much earlier is that the, the main point of that yes yeah. so um so even earlier than the midpoint i'm a big fan in we just talked about organic conversation but like mm -hmm. you know i have my syllabus and my plan but i really like letting things happen organically and so this year students were particularly interested in mental health mm. i can't imagine why right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um you know allow us to see it through to its logical conclusion and let people you know learn what they need to learn and say what they want to say and so i tend to be flexible with my syllabus and um yeah. you know some students really don't like that it's not predictable and you know they they can't plan everything in advance but um you know you go where the passions are um yeah yeah it'd be kind of cool to have a mental health course right where the fundamentals of psychological theories and concepts are woven into this, speaking of applied, right? Totally applied, practical, yes. right? It's, it's almost like a seri the series you normally see from a counseling center yes. uh, on campus, yeah. right? Coping with this, coping with stress, uh, managing test anxiety, right? And uh, it would, I don't think it would be that hard to take all of those practical you know, tools and weave them into a course, like a project based course that students can work through and still get something out of it. I mean, we were just talking this morning with, with my other guest, Des, who, who specializes in, in the teaching of psychology, right? The learning of psychology, right? The, the methodologies and all that. And how do we, and the main thing is, is like, you know, let's think about what students are going to get out of the course. What are they going to walk away with, given that 98% are not psych majors, you know, that kind of thing. This might be their only exposure to psychology, you know. Well, you know, and, and do a pilot and collect some data, you know, get some mm. pre and post, get some, you know, qualitative remarks and 
you know, apply to the NIH for funding <laughs> and let's do it. Let's let's make it happen. You know, yeah. Yeah. I get really excited by big ideas. Sometimes ideas will float in and out and, and I get really excited about them, but I have zero follow through. Mm-hmm. Zero. Um, and so ideas come and go. And for some reason, the psychobabble community, I was just like, I'm just going to do it and see yeah. what it becomes, you know? Yeah. 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 You just never know. Um, sometimes taking that first step is, is the most important thing, right? And it's scary. It's yes. scary. Yeah. It's really scary. You have no idea how scary it was to put my audio lectures that I use for class into a podcast format that's available for everyone. I love right. what you're doing. Like I've been looking forward to this since you, since yeah. you reached out. It I think it's so, fantastic. It's so scary. Cause you really put yourself out there. Yes. Right. I'm just waiting for that email to say, uh, hey, you know, that thing you were talking about, that theory, you were completely wrong. Was I what? <laughs> and, you know, people aren't going to like you. And um, do you fall apart? Like, yeah. no, you, yeah. you follow the mission. Yeah. I, I think it's really exciting. Yeah. And it's a great excuse. Uh, I mean, format to meet new people. So. Uh, and people I saw you're me. following me on Instagram. I mean, look at us. <laughs> We're friends now. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I just started Instagram because someone I interviewed said, uh, oh, I want to tag you. And I said, um, I don't have an Instagram account. Right. I'm more of a Twitter person. But even then, I, I try to avoid it most of the time. So I'd basically do my podcast, share it there. I have a Discord community, something you may want to look into. It's really great. Um, where we have a lot of discussions and you can create a lot of different channels with different subject matter. And I have about 50 people made up of listeners who joined, right? Uh, sometimes it's active, sometimes it's not, but that's something you may want to think about in addition to having, you know, a traditional blog or website. Um, that's so interesting because yeah. I use Discord for Pokemon Go, like to um, yeah. do raids and stuff, <laughs> but it never occurred to me that that would be, but I think you might be right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my yeah. daughter took it upon herself when she was taking community college classes to create a Discord group for students, right? And it wasn't something the college did. She just made them so any of her classmates could join and they could discuss things and talk about, you know, the questions they may have about this or that. And it was especially important in her math class. You really want to support from her peers. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. The yeah. ingenuity of youth, you I know. know? I know it's if you could put it in a bottle and keep it like never lose that never lose that yeah yeah, yeah. and this summer she has like three really best friends from those classes that they hang out with so um, this is yeah. good social media right? right social media it's, for good yeah. that's right yeah Okay, um, I think we're about to wind down. So I wanted to um, ask my guests some some more less serious topics. So let's finish by talking about how about and, and I'm just making this up as I go along because I, I really haven't come up with a, a theme for every interview yet. But uh, what are some of your favorite beverages and foods? Let's just okay. That. <laughs> so you know I'm drinking a bubble tea right now. That's right. Um, so this is a mango green tea with lychee jelly, and it is chef's kiss nice. amazing. Very good. I will admit that I'm not a very good cook. Um, that's the follow through part, right? So I'll look at recipes and get excited, and, and it's time to shop <laughs> for groceries, and I just, I just can't. Do you have an instant pot? You know, the, the, the one that everybody has? So we have an air fryer, oh, which go. is, we use it for everything, and yeah. it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of utilitarian, you know, I use Grubhub a lot. Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of another industry that took off during the pandemic, right? Oh my God. (laughs) And I feel really torn about using it because I know it doesn't benefit the like small businesses that Mm. I like to, to purvey. So like, are you saying it's not, are you saying it's not profitable for the restaurants that use the delivery or what do you mean by that? My understanding is that by signing up for Grubhub, um, the fees, will go to the platform and right. not to the restaurant. Ah, uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Capitalism is a curse. Um, or even the delivery people, right? It's sort yes. of like, yeah, yeah. I think they yes. they they get they have to really hustle to to make any meaningful money, right? And and I've worked in the restaurant industry. I am probably one of the best tippers you'll ever meet. Like mm-hmm. it is thankless work, and um, I stand with. I stand with retail. I stand with food service. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. My brother-in-law works at a high-end. Uh, he's a high-end server. He's been doing that for years uh, back in Vegas and now in Houston, right? Some of the most well-known restaurants. And and I can't imagine doing what he does. He walks like twenty to 30,000 steps a day. <laughs> and, and lifting and, and stooping yeah. and cleaning. Yeah. I mean... And, and, like, and the reason I mention that is because he also tips very well when he's the customer and I, I really respect that and that's really changed my way of thinking about tipping uh, whether it's a delivery person for pizza or just someone who's actually in the restaurant serving the food my empathy levels really shot way up I never blame the server if the food is running a little bit late in fact I usually give some sort of empathetic response to them whether it's to a cashier and they and it just you can see this big sigh of relief come over them that's so appreciative like oh thank you know (laughs) thanks for supporting them in that way right i mean they're your fellow human beings and they work extremely hard so that empathy goes a long way yeah this tipping culture too i could do a podcast about um (laughs) the ways that restaurants you know hey maybe we could do the psychology of tipping um and uh and and both from the psychological and the business aspect of it, right? Because I, I know that in other countries that this tipping format just doesn't exist. Yeah, right? I think it needs to go, but yeah. we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's still a lot of people who are for it, but I, I've seen some movements from big restaurant companies or chains to, to go back to a salary type system, right? I'm with, for it. With benefits and... Instead of paying what two dollars an hour, then the rest is tips. So I got two sixty three an hour, and uh, you know what are you gonna do? <laughs> All right. Well, Sarah, it's really nice to meet you. Thanks for making the time. Enjoy your bubble tea. Oh, it's and, been delightful, Jack. Thank you so much for, yeah. for having me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And hopefully down the line, uh, if you have any ideas for a very specific topic you'd like us to focus on and and take a deeper dive, let's do that. Okay. Juicy. So just, yeah. So, so find me on Instagram. <laughs> it's on my phone, so I will get the the DMs as the kids call them. And uh and we'll we'll keep in touch. Cool. Thanks so much, Jack. Okay, thanks. Okay. Hey, you made it to the end of the show. Congratulations. Okay, before I say goodbye, a reminder that this episode comes to you uninterrupted by ads. And if I do have ads, you'll notice that they are at the end of the episode. If you derive some benefit from this podcast and want this podcast to get even better, the best way to do that is to support 
my efforts. And you can do that without paying me. You can subscribe, follow, share episodes of the show on social media. You can rate and review it from your podcast app platform. And if you do have a couple bucks, buy me a coffee. The link is in the show notes. So please do contact me with any feedback, comments, episode ideas, or if you're in the profession or a student and would like to be on the show, uh, reach me by email or via the social media accounts that you see listed in the show notes. And come join our Discord community. Okay, folks, be well. Thank you.